In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Those he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, king of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshah, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abnego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and, wine, food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine, and they, the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king, to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. We continue our series that we've just begun through the book of Daniel, the first six chapters, which we've entitled Against the Tide. Daniel and his friends, we will find, were some of the few who chose to stand against the tide of secularism and ungodliness that they found in Babylon. I've entitled this message, Identities, Resolutions, and Protests. Now, last week, we considered how the events of Daniel's life and that of his friends indicated for us the absolute sovereignty of God 
and how God alone is the only being or the only thing of absolute value. Now, the rest of Daniel chapter 1 is no less important for us. It speaks to a person's true identity. And isn't that a topic of conversation these days? A person's true identity. And it also tells us how to stand for what we believe and how to live as followers of God in a holy way, a way that's consecrated to him that is pure or righteous before him. Now, these young men, Daniel and his friends, they were likely 13 to 16 years of age when they were taken hostage to Babylon. And from them, even as young men, we can learn some wonderful lessons. And most importantly, in this passage, we learn this, that God's people must live according to God's purposes. God's people must live according to God's purposes. But of course, that begs the question, how do we know what the purposes of God are and how do we live according to them? And Daniel is going to answer, especially the second of those questions, how to live according to God's purposes as he makes a contrast between the purposes of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and the purposes of he and his friends as they choose not to defile themselves, but rather to do what God says. So we begin with the king's purpose. After verses 1 and 2, where the king has been shown and the Babylonians have been shown to take away into exile or Uh, as hostages, we might say, the Jewish people, especially the young adults of the noble families and the ruling families, they take them to Babylon. In verse 3, we read this about the purpose of the king. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his royal officials, to bring into the king's service some of these Israelites from the royal family and the the nobility. We don't know how many Israelites were taken in this first siege. We know it wasn't Uh, nearly as many as would be taken later on when there were two other attacks by the Babylonians, but we could guesstimate at least a couple thousand likely. Now, how many of those couple thousand uh, at a minimum were a part of the royal family or were from the aristocratic families in society? We're not sure. Perhaps an educated guess would say a couple hundred or more. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, as he did, by the way, with all of the countries that he conquered and took captive, He says, go get some of the the nobility, the young people from these royal families, young men without any physical defects, so they had to look good, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. They had to be intelligent or capable. They needed to be well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And Ashpenaz, along with his group, were to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. In essence, indoctrinate them inculcate into them Babylonian thinking, Babylonian speaking, Babylonian belief, Babylonian art, Babylonian architecture, everything. Make them become Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. And among those who were chosen were some from Judah, who we've already heard of, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them these new names, which we will get to in a moment. What was the king's purpose in all this? The king's purpose was nothing less than absolute assimilation to Babylonian paganism. They needed to think and act and be Babylonians. They needed to change, in essence, their identity to where they no longer saw themselves as Jewish, believing in one and only one God, the creator of the world. But now, over three years... They needed to turn and become assimilated into Babylon, including the belief system. 
And the setup for this is that after these three years of what we might call liberal arts education, where they needed to be well-versed in the, the mathematics, the science, the literature, the art of the Babylonian society, which by the way, it's important to understand, the Babylonian society was the most advanced at this time period in the world, in all these areas. And so uh, they were saying, let's, let's get them up to speed. They're still young, they can still learn, they can still take all this in. Let's get them up to speed. Nebuchadnezzar was attempting to thoroughly, to coin a phrase, Babylonize them, to get them to be Babylonian, to totally change their ideas and their customs. And it was clearly his intention that at the time they were finished, they would be insiders, Babylonian insiders, and no longer foreigners thinking in a different way. And the change of their names helps to signify this. And here we come to verses 6 and 7 where it has this change of name. This is the first step. If you want to change someone's identity, and in this case you have the ability of force and the power of the state behind you, one of the best ways to do that is right away to change their names in the case of individuals like Daniel and his friends. Their original names were changed to Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But anyone from that time period, Jewish or otherwise, who had even a limited knowledge of the Hebrew language, the language of Daniel and his friends, would have understood immediately that all four of their names held within those names some link to the one and only God. It was not just that they, these were distinctly Jewish names that their parents had given them, and therefore a connection to Jewishness that way, but it's what their names reflected. It's what their names said about them. For instance, Daniel meant God is my judge. And in, in this context, it's clear he's talking about the one and only God, not some random God, but Yahweh, Jehovah, the only God, the creator. Mishael, who is like God? Or to say it in a statement phrase, God is incomparable. Hananiah, Jehovah is gracious. And Azariah, Jehovah is my helper. So these first two names, Daniel and Mishael, have within them this uh, this word, El, just meaning generically God, E-L, but it was connected to the plural form of one of God's titles, Elohim, in the Old Testament. And so in both of those first two cases, they're clearly linked to Elohim, the God of the Bible. And in the second two cases, Hananiah and Azariah, within their names is a link to Jehovah or Yahweh, the name for God in the Old Testament. And what does Nebuchadnezzar want to do? He wants to change their names. Their Babylonian names, interestingly, and no doubt this was intentional by Nebuchadnezzar and his court, each of their Babylonian names all linked to and clearly indicated something about one of the 13 gods or goddesses of the Babylonian pantheon. This is more than just a change of a name. This is an attempt to change their identity or to begin the process of changing their identity what they think of themselves and what they believe in, and that is illustrated by one of the first steps being the change of their name. In changing their name, it was a desire, it was a design to eradicate any outward distinctiveness, not just foreign sounding names, but a distinctiveness of their belief in one true God, which the Babylonians found abhorrent. If we were to pause there and consider something in history, for many years, and still practiced in many places even today, when a person became a Christian, they were often given a Christian name to replace or to be used alongside of whatever name they were given around birth. 
Now, the reason for that was to signify the change that had taken place. They had become a Christian. Their identity was now in Christ. And so it was fitting, especially in many of those cultures where initially you would have been named something in connection to your belief system, whatever your belief system was. You were named after a god or goddess or something like that linked to your belief system. It was, it was important then to give a new name saying, well, now you identify with Christ you, you have rejected that paganism that you held to before, that religion, that Christ-denying set of beliefs. Now you believe in him, so it's fitting to have a Christian name now. Now the problem with what Nebuchadnezzar was doing was not just simply that he was renaming them. There's nothing right or wrong about renaming a person. In fact, even to this day in our own secular society, we understand that once a, a young person becomes an adult, if they so choose, they can go fill out the right paperwork and change First, middle, last name, whatever. They can change their name. That is acceptable. And that's not necessarily moral or immoral. It's somewhat neutral. But Christians, I remind us, have accomplished this in the past. That is, there's been a pretty heavy emphasis uh, amongst Christians over the last 2,000 years when a person comes to Christ from some non-Christian background to change their name. But there's two distinctions here. One, Christians never force that on people. Nebuchadnezzar was clearly forcing this on these people. Uh, In Christian history, these individuals had a choice, and they desired to have their names changed to indicate their true identity in Christ. But secondly, and more directly related to this passage, is the direction of the renaming. When a person goes from believing in something that's not true, whatever that is, to believing in the one true God and trusting in Christ, their identity is found in him and what he has done for them, That is an appropriate direction towards which to have a renaming occur. But what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he is moving these Jewish individuals from belief in the one true God in the wrong direction towards paganism, towards lies, and indicating that by forcibly renaming them. So why is this whole deal about naming so important? Because it directly links to meaning and identity. Meaning and identity. If we go back in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 11, there's a group of people who all come together to build what was called the Tower of Babel, which was built a long time ago uh, in the same area that Babylon was then sitting on in Daniel's day. And these rebellious people are described as individuals who came together to build a tower. By the way, there's nothing wrong with building, building a tower, nothing wrong with working together, but the reasoning for why they did what they did was wrong. We are going to build a tower to heaven Essentially, to get to God was their idea, which, of course, is not the way it worked. But the main thing they said was, we will make a name for ourselves by doing this. I.e., we will define ourselves, we will give ourselves meaning, we are the masters of our fate. It was about identity. Now, all of us search for identity or meaning in our lives, but it matters immensely how we go about searching for identity and meaning. Babylon's philosophy resonates with our own day, the scientism of our day, which encourages us to look for both meaning and salvation in things like science and technology and human achievement. But scientific analysis and technology and all the human achievement in the world can never provide ultimate meaning for which our hearts and souls long. Daniel and his friends understood this, at least to some extent. And if we contrast Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, we will make a name for ourselves with the very next chapter, Genesis 12, And the calling of Abraham, we see a most vital contrast. 
God tells Abraham, I will make your name great. That's the choice. You or I, are we going to try to make our name, make a name for ourselves? Or are we going to take our cue from God and God alone and allow him to establish our identity? Are we going to listen to our own heart and soul, our own nature, which often leads us astray? Or are we going to listen to the unchanging creator who made us? Babylon and Babel, as well as our modern societies, want to do it, as Frank Sinatra said, my way. My way. Whereas Abraham was prepared to accept the identity and the significance that God gave him. I wonder, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to accept your identity from God, your creator, knowing that he knows best? Or are you bound and determined to create it for yourself? By what are you being defined? Society and its desires for what your meaning and identity should be? Or the one and only God? Something that I find fascinating in this passage and in the whole book, if you look at it, it's not 100% clear why he did this. But Daniel, we know he was quite intelligent, high-ranking in the most powerful uh, country of its day. So it probably is not an accident, but throughout the book, he misspells their Babylonian names constantly. And I can't help but think, and, and several commentators have commented on this, and I think they're right. I can't help but think that he's probably doing that on purpose as a little dig at the Babylonians, in essence saying it doesn't matter what you force our names to change to on paper, you cannot change our identity because it is found in God, no matter what you say. And throughout the book, we find Daniel is not reluctant to use and continue to use his original name. Even the king uses it. So at some point, although I'm sure he probably didn't push it too hard too early, at some point, in essence, he allowed his Babylonian name to die a thousand deaths by ignoring it completely. And good on him for doing it. What he is doing is he is realizing and pushing for, although not, not in a confrontational way, he's pushing for what he already understood to be the case. No matter what you name me, I can't change who I am in Christ, in God. So now Daniel will give us the positive example. That's the negative example, what Nebuchadnezzar tried to do. Let me change your meaning. Let me change your identity by changing your names. Let me assimilate you into this paganism. And Daniel and his friends said no. But positively, let's see Daniel's purpose. It's not assimilation. It's not just going with the flow. It's swimming against the tide to honor God and be holy. In verses 8 to 16, we see how he does it. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission to not defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king. He's assigned your food. If you look worse at the end of it, in essence, he says, he might cut off my head. And that was a real possibility. So we could certainly understand the reluctance from this man, Ashpenaz, who's saying, I, I would rather not lose my head. The king would then have my head because of you, he says. And by the way, it's, it's fascinating. In, in that day, perhaps a little bit less so in our own, the king of Babylon was supposed to be intellectually quite savvy and on par with many of the wise men in his kingdom. So he himself was going to be the one who after three years' time would test these individuals who had had this three-year course of indoctrination, of education, etc. He was going to be the one through question and answer to test them. That's quite interesting. It's very different to our own society and how we view leadership in some uh, way, shape, or form. 
But Daniel then says to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel and his three friends, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food, that is, the, the meat and the wine, so that that was no longer an obligation for them. They were given an exemption, and they were to drink water and eat the vegetables. <clears throat> it begins with a resolution by Daniel and his friends to not defile themselves, and a protest, a quiet protest, we might call it. You see, they were given the same food the king ate, straight from the king's kitchen, this was Michelin star quality food, the best in Babylon, which was the best in the world. Why in the world would you refuse to eat that? Well, we're told it's because they didn't want to defile themselves. What does that mean? This speaks to an inward resolution of the heart that follows with external action. There, there was something spiritual going on here. They weren't afraid of meat. They weren't afraid of wine. There's something spiritual going on here that they knew it would go against God's precepts and God's design. They had made God the sole director of their lives. And so he alone was going to be the source of their identity, their significance, and what they did and how they did it. Notice before we get to the exact reasoning, what the manner or the character of the protest was, Daniel asks for permission to not do this. And God had given favor to Daniel and his friends in the eyes of this individual who no doubt was over uh, looking many dozens or hundreds of individuals. But Ashpenaz is a phrase, and understandably so. Now, in this situation, it wasn't so much a question of identity as a question of image. Like many ancient cultures, Babylon placed a premium on physical appearance. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? People, especially those seeking high office, not only had to be able to do the part, to look good, to be good, so to speak, to be intelligent, they had to look good. They had to look the part. Huh. Not much has changed, has it, in our own day? Well, Daniel suggests, quietly, without fuss, that they should have a controlled trial. For any of those who enjoy the medical profession or background, this is the first controlled trial recorded in history. Interesting. The test that they would do was this. They'd eat simple food consisting of vegetables for a limit of 10 days with water. And then they would see, do we look better or do all these others who are on the king's uh, menu, so to speak, do they look better? And notice how they did this protest. There are times to take a stand by creating a showdown, you might say, a, a very public defiance, civil disobedience as a Christian, because sometimes the governments and politicians, they go directly contrary to scripture, and as we're told in scripture, we must obey God rather than men. But there are other times when to stand for truth, all it requires is a quiet, legitimate alternative to be offered. Daniel gives the alternative. He's humble. He's courteous. He's respectful. He knew he didn't have to be a contrarian and start yelling in people's faces and being a jerk. He, he and his friends just quietly say, no, we, we know we are not going to do this. He comes up with an idea that's an alternative, and it's at least tested out. Now, later on, he will stand very publicly up to everyone, including the king, on some very important matters. 
He knew how to do both, and we too need to know how to do both and which one to do at the proper time. But the reason for his resolution in his protest and that of his friends is this. We need to explicitly state it wasn't an issue about veganism or vegetarianism. Some have read this and, and misunderstood that. That's not at all what's going on here. Jesus made it very clear in the New Testament, Mark chapter 7, for instance, that physical food cannot defile a person in the sense of harming their soul. Why? Because physical food never touches your soul. It goes into your stomach. So, even the prescriptions or uh, commands in the Old Testament about what the Jewish people were allowed to eat and how they were allowed to eat it, it wasn't because there was something inherently sinful in that meat or in that food. It was because God was trying to show a distinction between them and all the peoples around them. And Daniel understood this. There were two primary reasons why they couldn't eat this food in good conscience before God. The first is that according to Leviticus 17.11, it said that they were prohibited from eating blood or blood products within meat. This is where we get the idea of something that's been prepared in a kosher way. So that Jewish people are able to eat it in accordance with the law. This regulation was designed, by the way, the Levitical uh, declaration about food and blood, was designed to remind the Israel people, in a symbolic way, of the sanctity of life. Because we're told the life of the flesh is in the blood. But the kosher way in which to prepare meat was clearly not the way that the Babylonians were preparing meat in their meat markets. And so it's very likely that in some way, shape, or form, there's either this is a sort of very rare meat that's kind of sitting in its own blood, or that the animal had not been killed properly in the Jewish manner, which was to drain as much of the blood as possible. And so they could not in good conscience eat the meat, not because they were against meat, but simply because it went against the way it was supposed to be prepared. But secondly, the food and wine had probably, almost certainly, both been offered to idols. There's certainly no prohibition against drinking wine for a Jewish person in the Old Testament in a general sense. There is a clear prohibition about being controlled by wine or getting drunk or drinking it in excess. But just drinking wine in general was not anti-Jewish in any way. But we know from a later account in Daniel's book that when the king calls to bring the vessels from the temple of Jerusalem and he brings them in and he and his officials are going to drink wine from them, what is the first thing they do after they fill the cup? They toast to their gods. So it seems to have been the the consistent practice of the Babylonians to to sort of toast or um, sacrifice, may not be the best term, but to give over or to pledge their food and their drink first to their gods before eating. Maybe a little bit like many Christians before they eat a meal, perhaps will pray before the meal and thank God for what he's provided for them. It might be a little similar to that. And so to partake of this food or this drink, it's not that the food or drink was bad in and of itself, but it was more of what was being entailed in the eating of it, spiritually speaking. It was consecrated to the gods of Babylon. And so Daniel and his friends knew that they should not eat it. By the way, there's a lot of excuses they could have given, aren't there? Well, I know that even though they consecrated it to these idols, those are just idols, they're pieces of wood and stone, and they're not really gods, and so it's not a really big deal if I eat this meat, because after all, we're not vegetarians necessarily by conviction, biblically speaking, I'm allowed to eat the meat. You know, this wine is just wine, no matter what cup they put it in, and no matter what god they put it in front of before they drink it. It's not really a big deal. No one will know. 
but they didn't make excuses. They held fast to what they knew to be right. This young man, Daniel, was above all a conscientious servant of the living God, along with his friends. His purpose subsequently differed from the king. He intended to remain faithful. Now, consider, let's assume, very conservatively, there was only a couple hundred young teenage men, in this case, who were brought from Israel, placed into this program of indoctrination, re-education. And yet, from everything we find out, only four refused to compromise. Teeny tiny percentage. You know, sadly, that's often the case today. Even amongst those who claim to be Christians, those who actually refuse to compromise with sin, to stand true to biblical conviction, is usually a very small group. But Daniel would not compromise. His friends would not compromise biblical restrictions. His thinking was God first, king second. That should be our thinking as well if we're a follower of the one true God. He is presented throughout the book as a man who would not compromise the truth. How we need such men and women of integrity. And I remind us, he was a teenager, a young teenager. This is not something that just magically happens once you turn 25 or 30 or 35 or 40 years of age. It is something that develops over time. They decided early on, no, we will do it God's way. That is it. It settles the matter. There's a song I heard as a child. uh, Written by the, I believe it was written by the president of a Bible college in North America. It says this, do right till the stars fall. Do right till the last call. Do right till there's no one else to stand by you. And it goes on. That was Daniel's motto, in essence. Doesn't matter if anyone else is with me. Me and God, we make a majority. We're going to keep going. I'm going to do it God's way, no matter what the repercussions. Oh, how we need that firm, biblically convicted base as Christians as well. Now, what was the sort of application that we can get from this protest and resolve? Well, here we see a young man deciding to be holy and not compromise. And I remind us, if you start compromising in small things today, no matter what age you are, If you compromise in small things today, then you will inevitably compromise in large things later. As Jesus said, whoever can be trusted in little can be trusted in much. Whoever is dishonest with very little is dishonest with much, Luke 16.10. We must be those who do not compromise. And if we are not preparing for tomorrow's battle with holiness today, then we're not going to be spiritually strong enough to stand in tomorrow's battle. Today's trials, what Daniel teaches us, is that today's trials are the training ground for tomorrow's battlefield. Today's trials are the training ground for tomorrow's battlefield. Now, our tendency when facing battles, challenges, tests, trials in our Christian life today is to wonder why in the world God is abandoning us. Why isn't he helping us? Why isn't he taking away the issue? But instead, Daniel helps us to understand, especially when we look at the whole of his book, which details... In essence, about 70 years of his life. Daniel helps us to understand that the Lord is not abandoning his people in those moments of testing and trial. He's preparing them for what he knows lies ahead. Daniel didn't know what was going to come. He didn't know that he would one day get thrown into a lion's den for praying and continually following God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't know they'd be thrown into a fiery furnace because they would refuse to bow down to the idol of Nebuchadnezzar. But... 
That never would have happened. None of that would ever would have happened if they had begun a tendency to compromise here. Through this resolve, through this consistency, through this integrity, through this godlike character, God was preparing them for much greater challenges that came later. Now, I hope you won't mind me confessing. I've recently forgotten this lesson. One of the many reasons we always need to be reminded what God's word says time and time again is because we so easily forget. You know, over this last year, just speaking personally, I've felt there have been several challenges, trials, temptations, whatever you'd like to call them, challenging situations, physically, mentally, spiritually. And it's, it's been quite easy, and it's probably the natural thing to do. When I go to the Lord in prayer about those things, God, why don't you, do you care? Have you abandoned me? Are you going to keep your promises anytime soon? Don't you know what's going on? Please take away these issues. Why won't you do that? Those are our natural tendencies. But I was encouraged as studying this passage this week. Perhaps some of you feel that way as well. I was encouraged that Daniel shows us God knows what he's doing. He's absolutely sovereign. And when he allows things to come into our life, it's not because he doesn't know that they're going on. It's not because he's incapable of taking them away. It's because he knows it's for our good and his glory. And if we will learn whatever he's trying to teach us, then it will set us up better for what he has next. So maybe a better thing to pray for myself and you as well, if you are experiencing this, is to pray something like this. God, what are you trying to teach me? Help me to humbly receive the lesson you want me to learn through this. Lord, I certainly want this taken away, but help me to remember, even if you allow it to stay, if that's your will, that, that you love me, that you are consistent, and that you have something in it for me. Prepare me for what lies ahead. It's essential to remember that God is often preparing us, like Daniel, for something that's yet to come. Now, Christian, have you proposed and determined to honor God alone? Of course, you cannot do that unless you've first been redeemed by him, you've repented of your sin and trusted in him. But once that has happened and you have passed from death to life, you are a Christian. And once that has happened, you must choose to not defile yourself, to not compromise. You must choose to live a life of holiness, living life God's way, even in the little things. Have you been compromising in the little things, O oh Christian? Have you begun to think that because the challenges you're currently experiencing, God doesn't care or he's not seeing or he's abandoned you? Remember the lessons of Daniel. That God allows trials and tests in order to prepare us for future service and that he is sovereignly in control of all of it. And our goal should be faithfulness in whatever God brings our way. That was Daniel's goal and that of his friends. We don't know what's going to come, but we do know and we can resolve to be faithful with whatever God brings in the here and now, to be holy and unwavering and faithful to him, even in the small matters. A few years ago, I heard <clears throat> a Christian pastor and theologian make this comment. It was a sad but true comment. He said, we now know that graduates of Bible college, pardon me, let me switch that around. We now know that getting a diploma from Bible college does not come with a backbone. What's he saying there? He's saying just going and getting theological education doesn't mean that that person will ever stand up for what's right. Because we've seen a lot of people who claim to be Christians going the way of the world, doing whatever the society says around them. They're, they're just doing whatever secularism and sinful, sinful society wants them to do. 
And what he was pointing out is that just knowing the word of God is not the same as doing the word of God. You can know a great deal of God's word, but if you have no integrity or Christ-like character, no consistency, no staying power, no resolve to not defile yourself, it does you little good. God's people must live according to God's purposes for their lives. Are you living according to God's purposes alone? Could I just ask that everyone close your eyes and bow your heads if you don't mind? I'd like to encourage you, just take a couple moments of silent prayer and reflection, what we just heard, and then I'll call us back together. Lord, we confess that we often allow compromise in our lives. We ask your forgiveness. May we be those who don't follow Daniel or his friends, but rather follow you and your ways, just as they sought to do. That we would be those who do your will your way, to know your word and then obey it to stand up, to have the backbone, to have the courage and the resolve that really only comes from you and a reliance on you and a deep, firmly rooted biblical conviction to do what's right in the small matters as well as the large matters. And as those tests and trials come, help us to remember the lesson we can learn from this passage, that those smaller matters are often training ground for something you know is coming later. Help us to prepare now. Help us to respond in humble servants, service and obedience, no matter what the situation. And then let you direct the future wherever you see fit. We ask this in your name. Amen.